This new year, please consider supporting Glass Tire. Because we're a nonprofit publication, all of our coverage is supported by viewers, readers, and listeners like you. If you would like to support our coverage, our news writing, or anything else on our site, please go to glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Zeck. I'm William Saradat. And today, you know, I know this is being published in the new year. Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, but this is our 2021 year-end wrap-up. So if you haven't seen yet on Glass Tire, uh, we published our best of 2021 in which our staff and our writers compiled their favorite art shows, events, happenings, all that kind of jazz uh, of the year. We also just recently published our top articles of the year with the most read articles on Glass Tire, as well as um, a compilation. Uh, William, you, me, and Jessica did uh, our favorite art books of the year. So some books that were published this year, some books that were published before, but we've just kind of repicked up again. Um, yeah, but this is our kind of year final year-end wrap-up, um, and we just wanted to have a conversation about the things that we had really paid attention to over the last year, the trends we noticed, or, you know, just some of the little takeaways that we had from the year. William, do you have a just kind of overview wrap-up? Is there anything just really big that you took away from the year? Gosh, um, well... We were talking about this in preparation for the discussion, but the things that we've seen come in through our classifieds, so stuff like open calls and job listings, um, but also just being able to visit a lot of different parts of Texas this year. I think I went to East, West, Hill Country, uh, Central Texas. Um, yeah, just there was a lot that happened, and uh, we're going we're gonna to go through it. Uh, first let's jump in because the first thing that we kind of have on our, uh, outline to talk about is something that wasn't Texas specific, but was really, uh, a thing in the art world. I would say it's one of the most talked about things that happened this year. And it was the rise of the NFTs. And then also a little bit kind of at the end of the year, maybe less talked about, but the rise of the metaverse and of online living and, how people this year got even deeper into online life as a whole. You know, that's e-commerce, that's Bitcoin, that's Ether, that's NFTs. That's it's everything that's associated with living your life online and having, you know, online currency, online uh, societies, online, just ev everything that's around this. Yeah, I think this year we were all skeptical about whether or not non-fungible tokens could really be a vehicle for art. And I think um, that panned out to be true. But aside from that, I it kind of articulated a larger topic, which is that I think digital art, digital presentation of art 
and e-commerce as the the means for selling art have all really taken off. Um, in Marfa, I saw a new NFT platform open a storefront. In San Antonio, I saw an artist, Nain Leon, who is uh, working on developing a strategy for presenting uh video works in a gallery setting. So I think that um, the race is on and we're all going to see a lot more of this kind of experimentation and strategy building around digital art in general. Well, you know, we did two podcasts about NFTs this year, one right after uh, the digital artist Beeple uh, sold an NFT for $69 million, which if you miss that, uh, not just our podcast, but if you miss that news, go back and check it out because it was everywhere. I think it was in March whenever that happened. Uh, so, you know, it's like people were just starting to kind of get vaccines and starting to maybe try to go back out into the world, but even then not so much. And then all of a sudden this online thing sells and makes him the, I think, the most expensive living artist, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that, I, I mean, that just kind of, made headlines because why not someone bought the simplified way someone bought a jpeg for 69 million dollars um but i think when when that happened i was a little skeptical like william we at Glasstire had to teach ourselves what nfts were and you know go through all of this literature on it so that we could do podcasts about it and so that we could talk because talk to other people about it because I had people asking me about NFTs, you know, because I'm in the art media and because we had been trying to learn about it. So just this was almost a year of education for me because I had never done Bitcoin. I had never done any of those kind of online price fluctuating coins. Um, So to learn about that was just a whole new thing. But also I think I was kind of skeptical i mean sure one sold for 69 million dollars but like is this really going to be a thing is it going to live on or you know are we going to be talking about it by the end of the year and i think we speculated on that some in our content that we did but it's still here and people are still doing it like it's not like pieces are selling for multi-million dollars every day but like i think this is really a thing that's here to stay yeah, there's definitely like a a new consciousness around um it's it's kind of complicated like what digital art can be um how you can kind of price it or structure it out as a larger product. Um there's definitely a feeling kind of like you mentioned Brandon, we had to learn all of this stuff seemingly overnight. But when I was at the Art Blocks house in Marfa, um, there was definitely an eerie feeling that like there's a new strain or a new species of art lover and they're just in their own ecosystem making waves, figuring it out. Uh, and I, I say that as an example, um, when you walk into the Art Block's house, they ask if you're an artist or a collector. And I was like, I am just here right now. I'm not really either of those things. Um <laughs> So they kind of assume that you are already bought into the ecosystem when you show up. And everyone at the weekend-long party, it coincided with Chinati weekend in Marfa. Um, everyone really obviously already knew why they were there, what they wanted out of the system, 
what their interest was. And they kind of assumed that you had all those answers figured out as well. And that really hit it home for me that like, oh, wow, this has actually been kind of boiling on the stove for a couple of years. And these people have have determined their own art identity just because it doesn't align with, say, what maybe you and I are more familiar with, the museum going, the art gallery attending, art reception having uh, art crowd. Even though it's different than that, that doesn't mean that they're any less convicted. Well, the weird part about it, too, is that, like, in a way, the NFT trend has kind of caused a broadening, I guess, of the art world in a way this year, or a broadening or an opening in terms of accessibility. And I have to qualify that immediately because it's like NFTs are not accessible. The art world isn't that accessible to begin with. Um, But a a broadening of accessibility, I guess, in terms of commerce, (laughs) like if you can do it, it's now accessible to you. Like for example, uh, auction houses, I can't remember if it was Christie's or Sotheby's or both, forgive me, but auction houses started taking cryptocurrency as payment. Like that's, you know, that's that's a broad, it's, it's not going to help the lay person like get into a museum. It's not, it's not broadening of accessibility in that sense, but it's becoming open. It's the powers that be becoming open to other ways of commerce, which is broadening accessibility to a new class of person to engage with or a new collector. Of course, if you're someone who's paying Christie's or Sotheby's in uh, Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, you're not a lay person that's trying to get into a museum to see a show of works by Picasso. You're a very specialized type of person, but it's still a weird broadening of accessibility in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Ever since Instagram kind of turned into an e-commerce platform uh that it seems like that's just the way that we're going if you can if your product is not prepared to be integrated into an online uh you know sales ecosystem then you might want to think about catching up because that just seems to be the way that things are selling um and of course you know, we've been living through this very on and off shutdown lifestyle where ordering things online, online delivery um, are just sort of the new status quo for if you want to sell goods at a large scale anyways. I agree, William. And also, I mean, just to (laughs) to go back to auction stuff for a second, just because, I mean, one of the hallmarks of 2020 and 2021 for that matter is that this year at least auction houses are back like people who are spending money at auction houses are doing better than ever and the the idea of the nft thing and how this relates to everything i think it's here to stay but also i don't think it is yet anywhere near what like traditional art you know like primarily painting and sculpture, uh, it, it's it's nowhere near where those mediums are. And also I think it will take a long time to reach to reach those mediums if it does at all. A reference for this, uh, what I mean, so there were three NFT works that sold for over a million dollars this year uh, compared to 
the top 10 most expensive pieces at auctions this year. The the cheapest one was $61 million. You know, and the most expensive one was like, let me see. The most expensive one was $103 million. So you can imagine how many other paintings sold for over a million dollars. You know, it's like there's hundreds of paintings and sculptures and traditional artworks by traditional names who have sold for much more expensive than NFTs. And, you know, of course, these are names that have pedigree and no one really within NFTs has pedigree yet. Um, So we're very much, you know, this is the this is the cubism of NFTs right now. Um, And we haven't yet found our Picasso, except, you know, maybe we have with Beeple. But this year sparked a lot of new things that could really influence the future, but we're unsure about in certain ways. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Um, I'm kind of skeptical as to whether we'll get more than a couple of names, a couple of like uh, big names out of NFTs. So we've got CryptoPunks and Beeple, maybe a couple others like Board Ape Yacht Club, which is not really one artist, per se. It's rather like a brand movement. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying I, I, I don't think it'll happen. I just think that um, based on like the general price trend of these things, I wouldn't be surprised if we got one Warhol and then 999 nobodies. You know what I mean? I mean, that's how the art world tends to work out. Right. Nowadays in general, like, you know, and and more or less, it's how it worked out all throughout the 20th century. However, I think there were I still think there were fewer artists because there were fewer art schools. And, you know, that that's this is a whole other conversation. But like nowadays, you know, someone graduates from an art school and you, you do get one Warhol out of 999 people or, or maybe one Warhol out of, you know, 90,000 people. You know, another element of this is um, with COVID variants popping back up, I feel like the online metaverse, whatever we're going to call online living, is kind of reemerging as a very viable option for people. Um, Like, we thought we had gotten back into the world in 2021, and there was like a few glorious months where we actually had, and now... You know, restaurants are closing and now everyone that we know is getting sick and now we're kind of popping back into a normal COVID world. <laughs> um, so I, I wonder how much that's also going to affect us going into the new year. Um, and I wonder also how much that's going to affect one of the other trends we saw this year and just kind of how the legs of COVID will affect one of the other trends we saw this year, which was everyone was announcing new projects in 2021. Um, And what I mean by that is specifically like galleries moved locations, Um, organizations uh, bought buildings or announced like major expansion projects. I'm thinking about uh, things like the Orange Show in Houston recently announced a big building renovation project. Uh, Women in Their Work, uh, a nonprofit exhibition space in Austin recently moved buildings and I believe they bought their new building. Um, the, uh, Alma, the, uh, Museum for Latinx Art and Culture in Houston announced that they are going to begin looking at 
trying to find sites to build a building and a big complex. Like all of these all of these different organizations, large and small, frankly, have decided that now is the time to step up. I don't know if it's because no one did anything in 2020 because A, it would kind of look crass to do your big announcement while everyone was hurting, or B, because people use 2020 to kind of strategically plan and get their stuff together before 2021 rolled around, so now they're starting to roll stuff out. Um, But I'm surprised at the success that all of these places are predicting based on the year that we've had. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of a a split outcome, isn't it, Brandon, where some some institutions, some organizations are kind of shuffling, still shuffling to deal with the coronavirus pandemic and the subsequent um, craziness in the economy because of that. But at the same time, there has been good news. Uh, It feels like more things have opened than have closed, which is a direct inverse of the sort of what we kind of expected to happen. Um, Daisha Board opened her new gallery on Sylvan in Dallas. That's kind of on the west side of town. Um, That was the liveliest reception I have seen (laughs) in a long time. Um, It almost didn't feel like we were living through any kind of historic moment at at the opening reception for Gerald Bell's show at at Daisha Board Gallery. And that was really refreshing. It was a reminder that um, Dallas, at least, but all the metro areas still have this kind of joie de vivre, this ability to carry on um, arts and culture. Pencil on Paper Gallery is moving their location from Farmer's Branch, that's just on the north side of DFW, to the Design District, pretty much smack dab in the heart of where all the galleries are these days. Um, that's amazing news, you know, having, knowing that a gallery is at the point where they can kind of up the ante, uh, that's awesome. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that space. One of the things, William, this isn't the case with smaller galleries, but with the larger institutions, um, and kind of the, the larger nonprofits that actually at least partially run off of endowments, it's not surprising that some of these spaces are doing well or might be, you know, trying to do some new projects because because the stock market's doing okay now compared to the collapse in 2020. Um, endowments have bounced back from like our initial fears of what everything could be. So these larger institutions aren't necessarily hurting right now. Um, I'm wondering if that could change and everyone's plans could be, you know, thrown into the trash again if these variants like start to happen uh, and happen in a really serious way but i'm also still worried about the smaller spaces and the smaller galleries and the new galleries that have opened because one of the things that we haven't seen this year that i really thought we might is the closing of smaller nonprofits or smaller galleries um from what I've been able to tell, you know, there there's always there's always occasionally closures and openings and things, but there hasn't been like a wave of these kinds of spaces closing like I expected there might be after, 
you know, after a year and a half or two years of COVID, uh, like these spaces, I kind of expected some of them to run out of money and just not be able to do it anymore. And we haven't seen that yet, but I wonder if with everything that's happening now, you know, restaurants are closing and I don't see bailouts coming. I don't know if art spaces are going to follow suit because, of course, it's a much different deal than restaurants. But I just I'm wondering if this thing that I thought was going to happen in 2021 might be propelled into 2022 or even 2023. Yeah, it could still be on the horizon. That's very possible. I think there's kind of... um uh a narrative it's sort of at the street level it's not exactly academic that like you know once the government kind of stops printing the money that uh we might see a precipitous drop um you're talking about fears around the stock market brandon i think those are valid as well um right before the holiday season the phrase that people kept saying to me was that money is so cheap right now. Money is so cheap right now. And um, I'm not an economist for sure, but I think that that kind of represents a sort of condition that we've been living through right now, which is that uh, the U.S. at least realized the need to get money circulating. So they took plans into action to make that happen. Um, But that's probably not going to go on forever and it will sort of have a trickle down effect. I I mean I was almost going to bring up uh unemployment. This is another I'm I'm not trying to <laughs> espouse any political beliefs or anything here, but that um you know, the reason for the massive turnover and in the labor force, people not showing up to work, especially in the lowest paying positions is that Unemployment has been so good for so long that, um, you know, we might see a bottoming out of the labor force. And I don't think that's the entire picture, but it, you know, it's a it's probably a significant one. Um, And I think that it just goes to show that. The financial system reacted to the current paradigm with an injection of cash and that paradigm itself is probably just not, it's not going to be the new normal. It's like a temporary normal, perhaps. Have you heard about any museums this year that have had the same problem that like fast food institutions have had of like museums not being able to open or not being able to fully function because they don't pay their guards well enough in order to solicit people for the positions? Well, that's a great question, Brandon. Um, I have not heard from the museum side uh, of any kind of like operational hiccups, but that probably has to do with sort of the branding that museums have and they have to deal with. They need to be public facing. They need to be friendly and inviting. Um, However, the sort of... um, online anonymous accounting of you know workplace practices and operations i'm talking specifically about stuff like you know change the museum on instagram that stuff hasn't really slowed down um and the variety of accounts the variety of stories coming out of these types of online accounts continues to grow there's just a lot of different kinds of complaints that workers have. Well, and there's been all of the union uh, 
things that have been happening specifically in New York as well or in the on the Northeast? So, I mean, yeah, that's such an interesting question because I think that I think that they're in some ways they're similar. The the kind of the labor force that is working in full scale service, um, whether it be food or hospitality, and then front of house people at museums. I think that they're similar types of uh, jobs for you know just for brevity, um, but the way that we kind of like. It's not like I've I've gone to the DMA and they say, oh, sorry, we don't have enough. We don't have enough um, guards on staff. So you. Yeah, this this section of the museum's closed, so you can't go there. Yeah. But I mean, I'll bet that there's been turnover in the museums. I mean, it, it's just we haven't seen it as much in the higher up areas of the museums like most of the like the curators, the directors, you know, the very public facing positions, the kind of the kind of positions that you hear about or we write news about if they turn over. Um, I feel like that's been very normal over the past year and a half and hasn't really no particular trends or anything have really struck out to me at least. You know what I will say is that um, I think that there may be more temporary vacancies or interim positions being held. And the thing is that you don't write a news piece if an interim director stays somewhere for a while. So I think in some ways these this issue is among the like bubble of invisible issues that hasn't gone away or changed. It's just that like you don't necessarily hear about it if it doesn't change. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um as we kind of move towards finishing up, I want to I want to point out we just kind of have some other miscellaneous things that we've been thinking about or that have stuck out to us this year. But one of the one of the things that stuck out to me that we've mentioned in different capacities on Glass Tire since COVID has started, but a lot of the larger museums across Texas, especially, uh, you know, these are the museums we're paying the most attention to. They've gone local in really interesting ways. They've had group shows that have been group shows of local artists. Um, they've had larger shows that also include local artists, like the the really embracing of uh, communities that museums have done, that these larger institutions have done in the last year and a half is really nice to see. Um, it's kind of long overdue. Also, of course, you know, you can't beat around the bush. The museums are doing it for their own reasons. Um, you know, it's it's cheaper to show work from a local artist than it is to ship work from New York or L.A. Um, it is it gets goodwill with the community, obviously, which is one of the reasons we're talking about it now. Um, you know, but also I feel like one of the byproducts of this is I'm trying to find the right way to say this. It hasn't brought larger museums down, but it's almost elevated the regional and local museums that have been doing this up a little bit. Like if the same artists are being shown in, I'm just going to pick institutions that don't necessarily, you know, this is just an example. I don't know if it's true or not. If the Museum of Fine Arts Houston is showing an artist who is just in a show at the Galveston Art Center, right? It's kind of 
putting institutions on a little bit of the same footing in some way, shape, or form. Obviously, the MFAH is so much richer still, and you know, there's a whole other host of issues. But I'm talking about in terms of having local connections and showing local artists. When larger museums do it, it elevates those places that have been doing it for a long time because now there's more of a local dialogue and also the museums are acknowledging the work that these other institutions have been doing is meaningful by showing some of those same artists as well. Um, and that's a very, it's a very Texas approach, I think, in a way, and a very Texas thing and something that we as glass tire, how we're advocates for Texas artists a lot of the time, something that we may particularly pay attention to and notice. But that was just a nice and interesting thing that I took away from this year. Personally, I think all eyes are on Texas, at least at the national level. Um, I think that everyone knows that people are going to continue to come here. And I think that artists know that if they have their anchor here, if they've been here, if they've put the time and the work into working and showing in Texas that Texas is only going to get bigger and it behooves them to continue to make good on that investment. So, but I agree. It's like we have such a rich, robust um, selection of exhibition spaces at every level here. It only makes sense that they continue to integrate and cooperate Um and yeah, I hope that continues through the next year and and so on. William, was there anything particular, just kind of miscellaneous shows, pieces, books, artists, anything that really stuck out to you this year? I had the the exquisite fortune to go to San Antonio for a while. Uh, just this month, I saw the Red Dot exhibition at... Uh, Blue Star Contemporary. It's an annual show they do. It's usually a one-night sale, but due to COVID, as with a lot of spaces, they've extended it out um, so that people can kind of go and see it rather than just attend um, the art sale. Jason Willamy, a UTSA professor, uh, had what I think is my favorite painting I've seen this year. Um, and that's upcoming in a roundup, so I'll definitely uh, post pics. I was also able to travel to Wichita Falls to meet Yasio Maruyama at her studio um, way up in North, North Texas, almost on the border of Oklahoma. And that was just a refreshing reminder that um, if you can, getting to see the work in the studio and also getting out of town and going to another place, a smaller place, perhaps. Um, being able to see Marfa for Chinati Weekend, which returned this year. It was absent last year. Um, that was another great experience of... It's, going to Marfa is just such a mix of seeing people from far and wide and then seeing really great homegrown West Texas people. Um, oh, I got to see, I think I got to see three Terrells this year, uh, which is a personal record. Um, I saw one at one installation, an outdoor structure at, uh, Mass Mocha in North Adams and then in North Adams, Massachusetts. And then you and I, Brandon, just saw, uh, 
the James Terrell they have installed on the ground floor at yeah the ground floor of the MFAH's new kinder building which that experience in itself was really remarkable just getting to see the kinder building um but yeah I was really stunned by that by that Terrell piece it's always a special encounter whenever you come across one of his pieces because I mean because they're they're so hard to see in so many ways like you have to if they're a sky space you have to end up making a reservation or showing up at the right time even pre-pandemic um or it's hard for museums to dedicate space to his work unless they really have space to dedicate to his work like they're kind of meant to be installations in entire rooms um you know kind of like you i went to the mattress factory this year in pittsburgh and little did i know i didn't really look up the mattress factory before i went but they had a, a whole floor with maybe oh maybe around five Terrell installations and they were mostly like the the wall pieces that had uh, you know that are a shape cut out of a wall that has light being projected into it from behind um and I mean it was just we got to that floor when we were walking through the building and I just kind of was like oh great like this is a chance to you know it's a chance to see these um I love it whenever any of those moments come across because there are there are those artists that have pieces like that where it's just always a joy to see and it's always I don't know it always just kind of gets you going it gets you excited whenever you come across them yeah I mean that was the first piece I saw when we entered uh the kinder building was the James Terrell and I just thought like wow if this is kind of what they've got on the ground floor if this is the first thing I'm looking at um I can't imagine (laughs) all of the other great stuff that they're gonna have um I still consider that as part of 2021. I mean, I know it opened in November of 2020, but let's be real. I don't think that many people got to see it then, especially people who don't live in Houston. Like, you know, 2021, I feel like was the real time when everyone started to experience that space. I mean, we're at we're still at such a weird, like stuttered rotation of windows when you can windows of time that you can get out of your house and you can go do stuff. Um, either something won't be open or maybe, you know, everyone's sick at a certain time. So you're like, well, geez, I guess I'm ordering in this week because I can't, I can't go see anybody or go do anything. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was at least the case for me. Uh, some plans kind of were shuffled around or rescheduled and it's, I feel like I got to do everything I wanted to do more or less. It just wasn't quite as on demand as uh, I might normally expect, maybe. Well, I feel like that's that's going to be the case uh, into 2022. Yeah, you just have to get real savvy about timing everything. Because uh, one wrong, if you wait a week, you might enter a new lockdown. And then you got to start all over again. <laughs> And with that, uh, do you have anything else before we sign off, William? I was just remembering Natalie Surrett's uh, exhibition at Row 2 in Dallas this year called Kevin Wishes and Charms. That was an exhibition of vintage handkerchiefs that uh, she hand embroidered and sewed while she was uh, recovering from a cancer treatment. And uh, kind of at the center of that exhibition it's a big wall of 50 handkerchiefs 
There's a small one that just says, I want my stupid little life back on it. Um, and I just, when I saw that show, I thought that was one of the most poetic and relatable viewing experiences so far this year. And um, it's still relatable. Um, I do feel like I've gotten a little bit of my life back, at least. I hope everyone listening to this is able to say the same. Um, but I'm also just glad to kind of have that perspective now. Um, and, you know, art is one of the only things that can really articulate that sort of feeling. I completely agree. And with that, thank you for listening. We hope 2022 treats you well. And uh, this year, we encourage you to go see some art. Go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2022.